Um, could I ask you to turn, please, uh, to the book of Psalms in the 78th Psalm? Um, we'll read down to the first part of verse 20. So, Psalm 78, it's a contemplation of Asaph. Okay, let us read the word of God, Psalm 78, verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might make them known or might might know them, that the children who would be born, that they would that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. The children of Ephraim, being armed with, uh, being armed and carrying bows, Turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law. And forgot his works and his wonders that he had shown them. Marvelous things he did in the sight of of their fathers in the land of Egypt. In the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. And he made the water stand up like a heap. In the, day, in the daytime also he led them with the cloud and all the night with a light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. But they sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness And they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out. Amen. Chapter 9, we'll just read uh, the first seven verses. Now, we read from verse 1 of chapter 9. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Sebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. 
as in the day of Midian. For every warrior sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the seal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Amen. Well, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, as we were saying this morning, God is working his purposes out and will do so, as we often sing, as year succeeds to year. Now, we have arrived at verse 6, which really uh, slips in almost silently, uh, unexpectedly. You know, after all of the uh, cacophony and description of drama, you know, the garments uh, rolled in blood, the plunder and sandals burning in fuel for fire. We, we read, for unto us a child is born. A child is born. Don't you think we, we need a warrior, a fighter? I mean, a fighter of fighters, a warrior of warriors. In the light of what we know about sin, Satan, the world, the flesh, the devil, what we're up against, I mean, don't we need a colossus that will stride human history, that will straddle the affairs of time? And don't we need, you know, the great champion that will beat all the bullies that have ever lived? You know, whether it's a pharaoh, or a Goliath, or a Sennacherib, or an Alexander the Great, or the Caesars, or Genghis Khans, or the, the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Pol Pots, whoever it is. We need a, a Colossus, a warrior of warriors who will beat them all into submission. We were concluding this morning, you know, what does God do? And send the thunderbolts, the lightnings, the nuclear bombs. What's God going to do? God, what are you going to do? I'm going to send a baby. Amazing, isn't it, when you think about it? It doesn't make sense. And yet this baby is the prophet who speaks from God. It doesn't make sense. Yet this baby is the priest who takes our place in his sacrifice upon the cross in Calvary's hill, which we will be remembering shortly in our our service. That doesn't make sense, yet this baby is king. King of kings and lord of lords and wonder of wonders. This baby is God. As we come to verse 6, we arrive at 
the place that we'll be singing about over the next you know, few weeks, field and flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. We arrive at the place where the hymn writer uh, says in so striking words about God contracting to a span, incomprehensibly made man. You know, biblical Christianity affirms that Jesus is God. He is the second person of the blessed Trinity. He has always existed. He was never created. The second person of the Trinity, he is co-equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. The one true and living God. The one God is triune. One God and three persons, not three gods. That's historic Christianity. Beloved, that is orthodox historic Christianity. Now the, uh, we come to this passage tonight and just want to address two questions. And hopefully addressing the two questions will be uh, suffice in order to uh, look at the Uh, the first of these names that we will be looking at tonight given to this child. Sometimes uh, the names, uh, wonderful counselor, are taken as one. Sometimes they're taken as two. Uh, We'll look at it it tonight uh, as one. And then um, next Lord's Day morning, God willing, we'll we'll move on to Mighty God. Uh, next uh, Sunday evening, Everlasting Father. And then I'm away uh, the following week preaching on wheels. Uh, but uh, Boxing Day, or not Boxing Day, uh, Christmas Eve. Uh, I'll be preaching in the morning and we'll uh, look at the Prince of Peace. And then at the end of the month, um, probably look at the government being upon his shoulder. So we'll, we'll just sit in Isaiah 9. Uh, six and seven for the next few weeks. So uh, the first of the two questions. Well, I'll give you the two questions, and then we'll look at the first one. Uh, the, the first one is, what, what does this mean? Uh, and the other one is, why does it matter? Okay, so those are the two questions. So first question, what does this mean? Now, the reason I read from Psalm 78 is because I think we'll be helped initially by looking a bit at Psalm 78. So if you flick back to Psalm 78, if you turn back to Psalm 78. And the reason I'm saying I think we'll be helped initially by uh, looking at Psalm 78 is simply because of the adjective wonderful. You know, in the original, it's not an adjective, it's an abstract. It's made an adjective in our English version in order to help us. And in Psalm 78, verse 11, we read there about the, uh, the children of... Uh, well, go back to verse 9. Uh, in verse 9, we read about the children of Ephraim. Uh, though they were armed with bows... Uh, they were turned back in the day of battle. Now, why were they turned back in the day of battle? Well, verse 10, 
because they didn't keep God's covenant and they refused to walk in his law. Well, why was that? Is there a reason why that happened? Well, verse 11. See what it says? They forgot what God had done. They had forgot the wonders he had shown and the marvelous things that he did in the sight of their fathers. They had forgotten about all of that. And then the psalmist goes on to define the nature of these wonders, the dividing of the sea. The water, he says in verse 13, stands like a heap. Verse 13 in the NIV says he made the water stand up like a wall. Boy, that's a wonder in itself, isn't it? You know, do you think we, we could get this water here, but poured it out to stand up like a wall? Yeah, our God works wonders. The children of Israel passing through the midst of those waters, you'd think that the, I don't know how they managed to get through so quickly. You'd be standing stirring at it, wouldn't you? Wow, look at that. You know, forget about the Egyptians on your heels like. Now, this is amazing. Water standing like a wall. The cloudy pillar, the fairy pillar, and the rocks being split, giving them, verse 15, an abundance of water to drink. They forgot the wonders he had shown them, and it led to defeat. Now, that said... We know the Jewish mind was still looking for the fulfillment of all these messianic promises given and added to since Genesis 3, verse 15. And so you flick back then to Isaiah again. You know, when Isaiah starts to speak in this way and he declares that this child who is to be born, you know, a son given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. It would have been, should have been no surprise to them to discover that he was described as this wonderful counselor. The one who defines, if you like, wonder in himself. They had already been told by Isaiah in chapter 7 that the virgin would be with child and would bring forth a son and he would be called Emmanuel. El being the name of God. And it's El that's used here in Isaiah 9 verse 6 as well. God with us in chapter 7. God for us in chapter 9. In other words, when you take the extent of these prophetic words, when you take the depth and the breadth of these prophetic statements, you realize that it takes the incarnation to fill it out and make any sense of it. Because no one else that lived before the time of Isaiah would be able to fulfill all that was said of this child. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Who on earth is this? That is why the prophets were always looking forward. Because nobody in their day 
came close to matching up to this. You know, kings were known in some measure by their counsellors. The extent of their authority and rule would be made apparent by the number of people they were able to have around them as their advisors. So the king's stature was directly related to the people that he could call upon. An advisor for this, an advisor for that, and an advisor for the next thing. What king has no advisors? This king. Isaiah 40, 13 and 14, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or who, as his counselor, has taught him? With whom did he take counsel and who instructed him? The end of Isaiah 28, it says of this one, that he is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance or wisdom. In the prophecy that opens Isaiah chapter 11, you have basically the exact same thing. It refers, as many of you know, this branch uh, from the stump of Jesse that's going to bear fruit. You know, what will this person be like? Well, Isaiah 11 verse 2 tells us, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In verse 3 of chapter 11, his delight is in the fear of the Lord. In other words, this is no ordinary child. This is the child with no beginning. This is the predicted child. This is the prophesied child. This is the one in whose very essence wonder is defined. Wonder of wonders. Miracle of miracles. Remember in Luke chapter 2, Jesus and his parents, they had gone up to Jerusalem when Jesus was 12. They had gone up for the feast of the Passover. And uh, Mary and Joseph, you know, head home and they soon realize, well, he's not with us and he's not with Auntie Janet and he's not with Uncle Joe. You know, has anybody seen him? And, uh, you know, they have to head back to, to Jerusalem. And they found Jesus in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And in verses 47 and 50, it says, All who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? They didn't understand what what he was saying to them. Of course they didn't. No no more than Mary understood at the time of the birth, the angelic announcement. But we're told that Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. this, This teenage girl, an angel 
peers and, and announces, you know, you're going to have a baby. You know, this, what we're looking at, friends, it's not theological lumber. This is not a fairy story invented by the early church. Friends, this is historical fact investigated by the historian Luke. And you read these things. Many of us have been saved going back many decades. And you read it at times and you say, you know, I just can't get my head around this. God becoming a man. God becoming a baby. You can't quantify it, can you? How can you encapsulate it in any way? Of course you can't. No one can. And the very fact that it defies our attempts to adequately address speaks to the wonder of it. You know, for 25 Christmases I've been preaching to yourselves from these texts. And I still grapple with it, stammer and stutter my way through it. Not able to adequately address the wonder of what's presented to us here in Scripture. Because all of these prophetic words are surrounded by both mystery and by the evidences of the supernatural so that they are not irrational, but they are supra-rational. And unless you read, you know, Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and Luke chapter 1 and 2 with your Old Testament eyes, unless you read it from the perspective, if you like, of the Jewish mind, it's so easy to go wrong very quickly. Because the, the Jew was looking for the consolation and the hope of Israel. Yes, they knew that there was one. One who was promised. One who was prophesied. One who was coming. The one who would embody all of these, these uh, prophecies and promises. The one who would fill it out, if you like. The one who would flesh out all of these messianic expectations they were they were looking they were looking with expectation and their hope um, was was not an abstraction their hope was in a person and that's what makes this so dramatic the child the child is the one who will deal with your distress this child is the one who will deal with your darkness it's this child who will deal with your sin it's this child that will deal with your oppression both then and now you know without that what what happens without that how do you explain what's going on with old Simeon in Luke chapter 2 you know, he goes into the temple and they bring uh, the child Jesus into the temple and there's Simeon. And Simeon takes him in his arms and he said, well, wasn't it lovely this morning, three, three wee babies in the congregation? Just seven days, eight days? Ten now, well. Well, close. Well, one seven weeks and one seven months. 
And uh, I, I've, I've held lots of babies in my arms and so have you. You know, you go up to those wee ones and you say, come here, here. Come here, here, you wee dope. Look at those wee legs. Look at those wee fingers and those wee feet. And, all, and isn't he like his dad? Or isn't he like his mum? And all of those things you say, is not right? When you take the wee baby in your arms, you go through all of that stuff. But I guarantee you, every baby that you have ever taken in your arm, you have never said anything that comes remotely close to what Simeon said when he took up this child in his arms. And he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And that's what's happening when this baby is born. There is born to you this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord, who is Messiah. It's this child. It's Jesus. Have you seen Jesus um, as your Savior? Of course you have. We're here tonight as brothers and sisters in Christ. You have a look out over the congregation. We're all uh, born again by by his grace. And yet we... Could all stand up and testify to the fact that, you know, once our eyes were darkened to who this Jesus was. And sadly, much shame, many of us would say we used his name as a swear word. And that's how it was until the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, opened our eyes, opened our hearts. And we saw who he was. When we see Jesus for who he is, we say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. Second question. Why does it matter? Well, because of the darkness. What darkness? The darkness that's outside. And the darkness that's inside. The people who walked in darkness, verse 2, as we saw this morning, have seen a great light. The darkness is emblematic of all the darkness within them. They were looking and saw nothing. Uh, they They were looking up and saw nothing. They were looking down and saw nothing. They were looking around and felt nothing but distress. They were sorrowful. They were ignorant. They were sinful. People walking in darkness is an apt description of a life lived without this wonderful counselor. And no matter how bright and breezy the godless around us may appear to be and may try to present their lives as being, you know, bright and breezy, the Bible actually describes them by nature as living in the dark. Living in the dark. Paul, writing to the Ephesians in this very theme, says in Ephesians 4, 17, 18, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, 
That's how we used to walk. In the futility of their mind, listen, he says, listen, their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. That's not a very nice description of people, is it? But that's what the Bible says. That's how the Bible describes uh, fallen sons and daughters of Adam. And unless the light of Jesus shines into those darkened hearts, they live in darkness. They live in hopelessness. And they're actually separated from the life of God. And it's Jesus who takes it a step further, doesn't he, when he, he says not only do people live in darkness, but they like living in darkness. You know, that's what you can't get your head around. And when you think back of your, your own saved days, before you were, you know, brought to a knowledge of saving faith, you liked to live in that sin, and you were miserable in it. Jesus, you know, says, you know, um, you know the reason that that happens is because, uh, you know, their, their deeds are evil. And that's why they don't like the light. So living in the dark, living, uh, liking the dark. But why has Jesus come? He's come to liberate us from the dark. You see, that's, that's what Jesus' mission was, to come to seek and to save the lost. And on that great day, remember when they were lighting all of those candelabras in the temple in John chapter 8? You know, it's ablaze with all of the you know, the wonder of the, the light. Jesus stands in the midst of the temple and, and he shouts at the top of his voice, I am the light of the world. My friends, either he is or he isn't. If he's a created being, he's not the light of the world. If he's a created being, he cannot be savior for only God can save. And it has to be a man that dies. Therefore, it has to be the God-man. And if this man is created, then he's not God. Therefore, he's a fraud. Therefore, he should be rejected. But Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so, beloved, isn't it wonderful to know that we have come to this, this counselor, this wonderful counselor, and he knows each one of us personally. And he diagnoses us properly. And he delivers us from uh, sin powerfully. I wonder, when you think back upon your own saved deaths, do you really, really appreciate the wonder of what God has done for you in Christ. You know, there was no light in us. We were dead spiritually. And then he comes. And he makes us alive. You know, in the film Amazing Grace, the story of William Wilberforce and the abolition of slavery, and one of the scenes, if you've seen it, um, one of the scenes, William Pitt is on his deathbed. And William Wilberforce goes to visit him. 
And Pitt says to his friend Wilberforce, I'm afraid. I am so afraid. Should he have been? (laughs) Yes. Why? Because there was no light in him. He was living in the dark. And he was about to go out into outer darkness. Why was that happening? Because no one had ever told him the gospel. No. Oh, he had heard the gospel. During the course of the friendship between Wilberforce and Pitt, Pitt the Younger, obviously. Wilberforce took Pitt when he was prime minister to listen, at least on one occasion, to a well-known Anglican preacher by the name of Richard Cecil. And when they came out, alluding to what I was saying this morning, when they came out, Wilberforce said that when he heard the preaching, he felt as though his soul had been raised up to heaven. And turning to Pitt, he said, and how about you? And Pitt turned around and said, I hadn't the faintest idea what he was talking about. One says, I felt my soul lifted up to heaven. The other said, I haven't a clue what he was talking about. What's the difference? Light and darkness. Light shining into the soul of William Wilberforce. Pit remaining in the darkness of unbelief. You see, the light that floods the soul of the redeemed has an effect on the the redeemed, doesn't it? It lifts our soul to heaven. It causes us to join, (coughs) join with the psalmist in Psalm 100, shouting for joy to the Lord. Leads us with the psalmist in Psalm 45, verse 17, to proclaim, the people shall praise you forever and ever. And those in darkness, the likes of Pitt and others, they're saying, what? Don't you dare come out of that place and shout to the earth. If you want to go into your wee buildings and do what you do in that building, whatever it is, if you want to sing your songs or proclaim those things, in there or whatever it is you do, do it. But but stay in there. Don't bring it out here. And for the moment they're saying that. They're trying to legislate what we will say, even in our gatherings, if they get their way. They say to us, you know, uh, we're not remotely interested in your Jesus. Would really love to squash this Christmas. Well, you know, we'll take the Christmas and all the nonsense associated with it. We would like to squash the Jesus of Christmas. That's their darkness. But we want to shout to the Lord. Why do we want to shout to the Lord? Because, you see, we see the wonder of this child. We know who he is. We recognize the, prom- we recognize the promises of God. Uh, and we want to share it with people. I mean, we want to shout it abroad. And as we saw this morning, it is God who has multiplied the nation and increased its joy. And why do we know that joy? 
That's why we shout for joy to the Lord, because the darkness of calamity and of ignorance and of fear and death and of sin has been overcome. It's been overcome in our lives. Been overcome by the light of this child who has come into the world, who is wonderful counselor.